Hello and welcome to Speaking Spirit, where we talk about all things spiritual. Your host, John Moore, is a shamanic practitioner and spiritual teacher. And now, here's John. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time of day it is for you. As I record this, it is early on a spring morning in Maine, which means we got fresh snow last night. Not too much of it, but it is very pretty. And I am looking out my picture window at the sun Mostly up now, bouncing off the trees and the snow and casting long shadows. Just so pretty. Today we're going to talk about the ego and really unraveling the illusion of the ego. I will talk about what the ego is, what purpose it serves, why do we have an ego. I will talk about its role in spiritual development. Does it have one? It's a term often um, overused, used improperly. It be, you know it became so popular for people to say, look, you know, check out the ego in that guy. That guy's got a big ego. Meaning somebody is overconfident. And that certainly is part of the ego, right? So I'm going to talk about what the ego is, why it is illusory, when, and, and how it can be problematic sometimes. In our spiritual work, the ego takes us away from truth, from spiritual reality. I'll talk about what is true a little bit, although that seems like a topic for a whole other episode. So, let's get into it. I hope you are all doing well. Let's talk about the ego. What is what is ego? What is the ego when we talk about this? Now, I know that the term, which is, you know, it's a Latin term for the meaning I, I am, but um, this psychological, psycho-spiritual idea of the ego came from psychoanalysis. It came from Freud, right? He had the id, the ego, and the superego, and this, you know, all of these things, and how we deal with the world, and how we deal with ourselves, and our drives, and all this stuff. Boiled down to these three components. But when, when I'm talking about ego from a spiritual perspective, what I'm talking about is basically our ideas about who we are. It's a little bit more than identity, but identity is a big part of it. 
When you say I, what are the stories you tell yourself about I, about that person I or me? What are the stories? What are the definitions? What are the names? So, so most people who know me call me John. And that's a label that my parents gave me when I was born. My daughters call me dad. Am I dad or am I John? Well, those are both labels. I might call myself by those names or answer to those names. And I don't have a nickname, but if I had a nickname, that might be another thing I answer to. Those are just labels. But in English, very often we say, I am John. Not I am called or my name is. So there's this identification with this attachment to our labels. And you might have that if you have a job where you're called by a title, right? Maybe you're called doctor or attorney so-and-so, right? Those are labels. They're not who you are at your spiritual core. What are some other things we identify with? And I'm going to break down identification in a minute, but what are some things we say, when we say I, what do we think about? Do you think about your body? Most people do. Most people are very heavily invested in the body is who I am. Right? When somebody dies, when a mind-body dies, we say, we buried your cousin down in the old cemetery. We don't say, we buried your cousin's body. Buried the body that was in use by your cousin. At least we, you know, in English, I don't know what other, how other languages structure this, but Say, I buried your cousin, or your aunt is buried here, or that sort of thing. Not the remains, not the body. We're, we really, really identify the body with the person. How do we recognize other people? By the shape of their face, the shape and size of their body, their gait, their mannerisms, their voice. I remember I had a friend with just, uh, not that unusual, but just a very distinct walk, right? Just the way he held himself, um, and I was in downtown Boston, and I looked down this long, long street over actually into South Boston, and uh, which is another city, actually, and... Um, I don't know, about a quarter of a mile away, I see this person walking, and I'm like, I think that's Jimmy. And I stopped, and I waved, and he waved, still couldn't see his face. Walked down the street, and sure enough, it was Jimmy. So, you know, we recognize people by how they walk, how they stand, their physical appearance, their name. Somebody says, oh, you know, Bill, that guy I work with. having a sip of coffee. But the body isn't who we are. 
How do I know this? How do I know the body is not who I am? Well, for one thing, this body changes constantly, right? New cells are added, old cells die off. The chemical changes in my body, the changes in my brainwave pattern happen all day long. We have cycles. This is completely changing. Is it, it, has it been cohesive so far? Has this body stuck together for my lifetime? Sure. But it's constantly changing. But the sense of I, when I say I, as in I exist, I am aware, I perceive, my perceptions change. The thing in the things in awareness change. Awareness does not change. The capacity of awareness does not change. It's the same thing no matter what appears. It's like a stage. It's like an empty stage awareness. And awareness is what we are at our core. Pure, unadulterated awareness. That doesn't mean we don't have a body. We have a body. It's important to take care of your body. It's important to take care of your mind. You're using it for now. You get stuff to do. Awareness doesn't do anything. But that's who you are. So by extension, you don't do anything either. Sure feels like we do stuff though, doesn't it? And that's part of the illusion of the ego. So the ego is this collection of ideas about who we are that is an illusion. And it is a survival mechanism. It keeps this body and mind alive by making it think this body and mind is important. And the thoughts that this body and mind are having are actually, it. sometimes it feels like we are our thoughts, right? You have an, if you have an inner dialogue, it might sound like it's you talking to yourself in there. It could just be noise. It could be your holy guardian angel. It could be, you know, who knows, right? All kinds of stuff. But it feels like it's us. There's a part of our brain called the default mode network that gets really busy in times of things like boredom, rumination, daydreaming. And part of it, part of its function is to constantly, constantly try to determine who we are. It's scanning things like the environment and social cues and all kinds of stuff for us to determine who we are. So those thoughts that come up, those thoughts that arise in awareness very often feel like they are us or that at least they're coming from us. What if what if they didn't? What if they just arose? What if thoughts just arose? You know? And what if we are just the awareness, the space in which 
the thoughts arise, the perceptions arise. Even our perceptions of who we are. What if that were the truth of the matter? So I said before that ego's function is to keep this body and mind alive. We have all kinds of survival mechanisms, tons of them. Um, We're not born with too many. This body was not born with too many survival mechanisms. It could cry if it was hungry and it had a fear of falling and a couple of instincts, but not much more than that. But very early on in the life of a child, at least a human child, almost immediately we start calling children by name, right? We start saying, oh, look at little Bobby. Isn't little Bobby cute? And if something happens, you know, baby happens to smile or respond to their name, the adults in the room get really excited. Look, he knows his name. He knows he's little Bobby, right? Or they talk to little Bobby. Hi, little Bobby. Do you want to eat? Right? And we're programmed to want to eat so that we grow and survive. So we very quickly associate the label with who we are with by being rewarded Right, it's conditioning, Pavlov stuff. So then, you know, our parents, at least in my generation, they put you in clothes that were color-coded for the genitals you were born with. If you were a boy, you wore blue. If you're a girl, you wore pink. I realize things are changing, but that was, that was the way. And then you're given all kinds of rules. You're given rules by your parents. Some of them communicated openly and some of them not. How many of you have a parent who could just give you a look and you knew that you should stop whatever it was you were doing? Or a tone of voice. Or they punished you. Or they rewarded you. And so you started to learn who you were and you pushed boundaries. Sometimes you got in trouble for pushing certain boundaries. You learned, you were conditioned to be who you are on an ego level. So all of these experiences happened in awareness, um, but they feel like they are us. We have these stories about our past. I went to school here. I grew up here. It's all ego stuff, all of those stories. There's nothing wrong with them other than we get very, very attached to our stories. We get attached to our labels, we get attached to our body, our relationships, our jobs, all of these things that are not who or what we are. 
we get attached. And that's ego. And ego makes us also think that being attached to it is good. It feels like an existential threat if anything challenges our ego. I'll never forget, I had um, a particular relative um, who's not <laughs> not in my life anymore, um, but she was the kind of person who would always start trouble at family gatherings. She was always angry with someone. She was always not speaking to some member of the family. She would say nasty things to get emotional responses and it would it would start fights <clears throat> and i tried i tried for a really long time not to get riled up by her i knew what she was doing you know we've probably all had toxic people like that in our lives and um what she would do is she would hunt for buttons she would hunt for things that got you upset things that could trigger you and you know to say them to you because she wanted she felt this you know this perverse sense of of um, satisfaction I guess pleasure it was absolute pleasure from stirring the pot or saying horrible things to people and getting away with it and you couldn't call her on anything because she would uh, fly into a rage um, in fact she got uh, she got violent which is why she's not. Um, not a part of my life anymore. I have no tolerance for that. This body mind is, I'm trying to keep it safe. And so, um, anyway, she found, you know, I would just stay above it all and okay, whatever. She's doing her thing and she wants to get somebody upset. And she looked at me one day and said, you're not a man of your word. And that hit me like an ice pick to the chest because I had egoically identified myself as somebody who was very truthful. It was part of my identity, part of my ideal identity, even though, you know, we talked to the kids about Santa Claus and, you know, there were certainly untruths, but that wasn't part of my self-concept, my idealized self-concept. My ego was that I'm, I tell the truth. I'm an honest person. I make an honest effort. She said that, and it, it, I felt my blood boil underneath, you know, when they say getting hot under the collar, that's exactly what it felt like. And she made some reason. We had been um, trying to, we had talked about going on vacation with the these members of my family at one point, and it never uh, it never panned out. You know, I had th- I had thrown um, three or four dates across, and it never ever it never ever came to pass. And that absolutely no fault of mine <laughs> or anybody's really whatsoever. Um, we just could not find a mutual time for that to occur. And that's and that's what she, well, you said we were going on vacation together and we haven't gone on vacation together and blah, blah, blah. You know, and I was like, hold on a minute. 
you know, and then I had to like get into the thing where I start to fight about facts and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, I gave you guys four dates and none of them worked for you. And then you had a date that didn't work for me. And what's, you know, what's all this stuff? What is all this stuff? This is cuckoo. This is crazy. But it was my ego that was acting up. So the ego wants to keep the body-mind alive. It's a survival mechanism. It comes from the fact that human beings are, we're individuals, but we're social creatures. We're wired for socialization. We have to, to survive as a species. We had to team up. We didn't run faster than most animals or climb trees or have sharp teeth or claws. We had to hunt using cooperative hunting. We had to make tools. We had to shelter together for protection. So, you know, at some point in the development of prefrontal cortex and whatever, ego became important. Seeing oneself as a separate entity living inside a body or being the body and responding to the names that our tribe mates were calling us and having esteem, feeling good. Hey, I'm a member of the Jub Jub tribe and, you know, we're better than the guys on the other side of the river who are in a different tribe. They're awful. Look at those people. Let's do warfare against them. It's the history of the world right there. They've got something we want. They're not as good as we are. We're going to go kill all of them and take it. So the ego develops. And again, the problem is not necessarily that you have an ego And that you need to destroy it or kill it or dissolve it or make it go away. Although a little dissolution is not a bad thing. It's that you're attached to the ego at the level of identity. Is it useful for me to be able to respond to the name my parents gave me? Yes, it is in certain circumstances. Is it useful for me to play the role of dad? Absolutely, and I love my children dearly. But in the realm of spiritual development and spiritual truth, the ego is a little bit of a trap. It's not an enemy. It's a survival mechanism. It has good intentions. It's just very, very powerful for most of us. And it can take us out of spiritual truth. Spiritual truth is the reality that you are pure consciousness. And that there is only one consciousness. There's one awareness. Awareness is one thing. This is part of non-dual thinking or non-duality. Non-dual meaning not two. 
at certain levels of spiritual awakening, one can have a persistent experience of non-duality where everything feels like everything feels like it's the same thing. That's how you experience you're experiencing everything being part of the same experience. So if I'm having a conversation with somebody, awareness is both sides of that conversation. It's just like a little play that's acting out. So at deeper even beyond non-duality, there's more, right? There's more and deeper levels of this experience of being pure, empty consciousness, empty awareness. And when I say empty awareness, I don't mean there's nothing there. I mean there's space there for holding everything. Imagine, Imagine a magical box in which you could place everything there is. That's... That's awareness. Now, at deeper levels of awakening, the experience is like the entire universe is peering through a single set of eyes. As I look out from this body through these eyes... it feels like the entire universe is looking through these eyes at this moment. It's like I've, I've, gone to, I've gone to a place where there's a peephole and a wall and I'm looking through. And what ego says is that I am the peephole, not the one looking through. So what do we do? Like knowing all of this, is great. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Knowing all of this is one thing. What do we do with this? This is just information. There is something to be said for information helping us in the process of development and awakening. But it's not all there is, and it's certainly not the most important thing there is. What's most important is shifting awareness, shifting our paradigm. I realize that paradigm shifting is an overused business term. But what we mean by paradigm shift is an entire a shift in worldview. Everything about how the universe exists shifts for you. And it's about getting in touch with what you are at your core. Now, last night, the night before I recorded this episode, I taught a an hour and 15 minute long um, course in spiritual awakening. Just a short webinar, an hour, an hour and fifteen minutes. That's shorter than most, you know, than a lot of meditation sessions. There was a little bit of talking, and then we dove into 
um, four different meditations in that period of time. They were very short. Um, this is going to sound braggy. I'm not saying this to brag. I, I'm saying this, and the example will become clear in a moment, but um, I had people on this webinar who were some were experienced meditators who had been practicing Buddhism for years and others in various levels of you know, spiritual development and practice. And, um, you know, these short experiences were designed to lead people further and further inward and dis- disconnect more and more from the ego. And some of the, some of the comments that I got back from people, um, not to pat myself on the back too much because that's ego, but were, you know, this is profound. I thought it would take years of practice to get here, and you went straight to the heart of it. Well, this isn't anything special. It's not me. I'm not a guru. I can't tap you on the head and make you enlightened. It only works that way because you're already enlightened. Your core is aware is pure awareness. It's just a matter of, it's not a matter of attaining anything. It's not a matter of learning anything. It's not a matter of, um, I don't know, reaching the fifth dimension or, you know, ascending or any of that stuff. And not that there's not that there's anything wrong with those practices. I don't know anything about them. I'm not putting anybody else's practice down. I'm talking about my approach was not to do any of that. But it was to guide people to relax and sink into the awareness that they already are that is always present. It's always there. You don't have to seek it. You don't have to seek awareness. It's already there. So what do we have to do to bring that to the forefront? What do we have to do to live from that space? Not much. Part of it involves detaching from the ego, detaching not deleting the ego, not having ego death, although those things can happen in profound spiritual experiences, I still think it can be useful. The ego can be useful as long as we are not letting it run our lives, as long as we are not getting pulled in and attached to it. It is still useful for this body-mind to play the role of dad, to play the role of teacher, to play the role of lover, to play the role of the guy who answers to my name. You know, imagine if I needed to renew my driver's license and I go into the DMV and they call my name and I sat back egoless and didn't respond to it. I'd wind up driving on an expired license. So no, these things can be useful. I don't, you know, I, the people who look at and study these things, um, 
there are lots of there are you know longitudinal academic studies of spiritual awakening and what that experience is like where they've gone and you know interviewed thousands of people over many years and talked to um you know monks and other people to find out what these experiences the experience of awakening and 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 um detachment from the ego spinning the ego down Dissolving the ego a little bit, dissolving the by the ties that bind us to the ego. And what it seems is they have not reached a level, they've not, you know, in, in research and study and even in the spiritual writings, it doesn't seem like there is an end to the levels of awakening, to the depth. Maybe, you know, at certain levels from what I've read and had some experiences in this department, um, the idea of volition goes away, meaning I'm not even running this body anymore. The body is running itself. This body-mind can take care of itself. It can feed itself. It can go out and have a job. It does not need... It does not need the help of awareness. It's going. It's occurring inside awareness, but it doesn't need any help. It already knows what to do. It's been conditioned really well, or you know, well to some degree. This body mind can run itself. I don't have to put effort into that. It feels like you do. What if everything? We're completely effortless. Now, that doesn't mean the body stays all in bed all day and never moves and, you know, eventually dissolves because your, your body isn't efforting. But what if you abided... What if your attention abided, lived from spacious, still, blissful, peaceful consciousness, which is what you are? What if you lived from that place all the time and your body and mind just kept on doing what it was doing appropriately? That's a profound step into spiritual awakening. It's a profound place to land. It's a profound, you know, um, way, I guess. It's a profound shift in consciousness for most people. But that's there. That's available to you right now. can live from that awakened state. You can you can reach back right now and touch on that just with your intention. You don't need to sit for 20 years and watch your breath, although I highly recommend meditation. Meditation 
turns off the default mode network. In other words, it the default mode network being the part of the brain that ruminates on stuff and thinks it's you. Meditation deactivates this to some extent. So it loosens the grasp of ego. It loosens the identification with ego. Now, one of one of the meditators with me last night in this workshop that I taught, you know, we did this, um, you know, we did these series of recitations in the beginning. So just, you know, repeat after me. And part of that would go through this series of recitations that were meant to loosen up the grip of ego. And then ask ourselves the question, what am I? And rest in that space of whatever comes up. And one of the meditators asked, well, when you had us ask the question, what am I? The word one came up. Is that okay? Is that okay? No, that's not, no, I'm just kidding. That <laughs> um, Everything is okay. Everything that comes up, particularly in meditation, is okay. And you know, that is an accurate, you know, if you're going to put a label on it, if you're going to put a label on, and we have to, to talk about it a little bit, it's hard. A lot of people who are there who are like, I can't really describe the experience too well, and I get it, you know, and they tried and they're like, my edges disappeared. And I said, ah, yes, boundarylessness. I'm like, oh, that's it, that's it. So it took a group effort, took more than one brain to come up with a good description of what some experienced. And people can just float in this boundaryless, peaceful, blissful state. And the body doesn't die. The ego might rebel a little bit in the beginning. Because it thinks if you let go of your grasp on the ego, your attachment to the ego, it thinks your body's going to die. Or it'll let, you know, it'll feel like that. Or I won't be me anymore. The me who I think I am will disappear. That's another form of death. So my comments about that are, are kind of twofold. Um, one is that who said death is a terrible thing? You have a body. You should take care of it and keep it alive. You've got stuff to do, but death isn't all that scary once you realize that you are pure awareness and that you were never born and will never actually die. The second thing is the 
the the I that you think you are, when you say I am, changes all the time. We've talked about this already in this podcast. This you that you think you are is not who you are, but it also changes. You ever get hangry? Your body chemistry changes your personality, your perception, your how tired you are, whether you've just exercised, physical processes that are changing. You have natural body rhythms. You have a diurnal rhythm, right? You have all these biorhythms. You, you might have a monthly cycle, right? So does that profoundly change who you are? Well, it can. It can change your experience profoundly from moment to moment. So you're constantly dying and being reborn as something, someone new from a, from a strict ego perception. So when I stop doing this episode, when I stop recording this episode of the podcast, if one of my children called me, I would shift into dad mode. And the, the me that was recording this podcast would change significantly, would go away, would die off to be reborn another day. It's not that serious. It's really not. It's really not that serious. But the ego will have you think. The ego will lie to you. You will die if I go away. It has no qualms about lying to you to get its way. So, what do we do about this? How do we begin to unravel the ego? Or not the ego itself, but attachment to the ego. First of all, let the ego take care of itself. You don't have to add anything. You don't have to take anything away. You don't have to fight with it. But understand that you are pure awareness and everything that comes up, including your experience of having a body, is coming up in awareness and that's what you are. You are aware of your body. Your body is the object in the, I have a body. I see my body. I is the subject Body is the object in that sentence. You are not objective, meaning you are not an object. Nothing that arises as an object in your awareness can be you. You are the subject. You're the witness. You're the observer. But even those are objects. You're the capacity. You're the stage. You're the movie screen on which life is projected. You can have a very direct experience of that in a very with a very short meditation. So what we can do to, is to start recognizing the ego's effect on our perceptions, on our life. How does identifying with my name, 
How does identifying with my self-image as an honest person or this kind of person or whatever, how does identifying with the labels or the body, how does that affect my perception of spiritual reality? And being your beingness, being what you are at your core doesn't require any effort at all. None whatsoever. It's already who you are. It's sort of like looking at a bird and saying, how much effort are you putting into being a bird? Well, that would be a silly question, right? But we put effort into being our ego, to thinking we are our ego. We put effort in. I wear certain clothes that match who I am, my style. I, you know, act like dad when I'm in that role. I act like a podcaster when I'm recording a podcast. The body-mind is is efforting but the self is not. And there's an expression I really like. I don't know where it came from. I learned it from Hale Dwoskin of the Sedona Method fame, wrote the book The Sedona Method and teaches The Sedona Method. And I really like him as a teacher. I've I've uh, been with him live a couple times and online a whole lot and read um, his book and uh, really, really like the teaching of the Sonoma method. But one of the things he says is, um, and this might have come from his teacher or somewhere else, I don't know, is be not the doer. Be not the doer, meaning the body and mind is doing stuff. Don't identify with that. Don't identify with doing anything. You're not doing anything. You're being. You are awareness, and there's no effort in awareness. Look at something, wherever you are right now, whether you're listening to this in the in the, your car or somewhere else, You can look at something that's in front of you. Even if you're driving, it's totally fine. I'm not going to do any meditation here. Just look at at something. See something in front of you. Or hear something or touch something. doesn't matter. Perceive something. How much effort did you put into seeing or hearing or whatever. You might have looked, you might have directed your awareness at something. You might have directed your attention, not your awareness, you directed your attention at something. But beyond that, you didn't do anything. How much effort do you have to put in to experience the fact that you have a body? 
Now, I know you might put effort, it might feel like you're putting, your body's putting effort in to maintain your body. You have to eat things and exercise and drink things and go to the bathroom and what, you know, wash your face and all kind, you know, whatever it is that you do that, that feels like effort to take care of the body. Um, and if you didn't, eventually the body would disappear. But I'm talking about right now, in this moment, whatever perception you have, that you have a body, whether you you know can feel it or see it or hear some part of it, some aspect of your body, how much effort is required to perceive the body? None. None. Because awareness doesn't put in effort. Awareness does not effort. It is effortless. With that, I'm going to leave you a little bit with a little bit of, you know, something to do. Just start noticing when ego comes heavily into play, when you're over-identified with the body. And ask yourself, what would happen? What would I be if I'm not this body? What would I be if I'm not this name that my parents labeled me with or whoever labeled me with? What would I be if not the thoughts running through my head that change every tenth of a second? What would I be if not these perceptions that arise in my experience? Start looking at that. And your attachment to ego will start to unravel a little bit. It will take you deeper and deeper. Anyway, I hope you're well. I love you all. We'll talk really soon. been listening to Speaking Spirit with your host, John Moore. For more info or to contact John, go to mainshaman.com. That's M-A-I-N-E-S-H-A-M-A-N.com.